at the story of Jacob. I, I said this the very first week. I've never actually gone through the story of Jacob quite like this. And uh, I've really, I've enjoyed it. It's been kind of fun to kind of see uh, this life of Jacob. And last week, uh, if you were here, you'll know that we talked about, um, about the blessing and how Jacob stole the blessing from Esau and the importance of words and how, how Esau was not very pleased by this, obviously, and how it was heartbroken in many ways. And we're going to skip over a little part of the passage that talks about how Esau was ready to kill his brother for what he had done. And so Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother, said to Jacob, you better get out of here. So I want you to go visit my brother, whose name is Laban. And so Jacob begins to venture off all alone in order to try and go and find his uh, uncle Laban. And that's where we are um, at this part of the story as I begin to read from the 28th chapter, uh, starting with verse 10. Genesis says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. In the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all and of all that you give me I will surely give one-tenth to you. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, on this uh, chilly morning, we gather around together. We gather around the word proclaimed now. Later, we will gather around the word, around this table, the bread and the cup. And we pray, Lord, that as we do this gathering, that we will be aware, that we will be aware of your presence in our midst. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength 
and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So, as I said before, Jacob is on the run, right? He's running away from, uh, from a blessing, it seems. He's running away from his brother. Uh, he's running away from his reputation. He's running away from his past. He is running away as quickly as he possibly can. And we don't know exactly where it is that he stopped, at least not at first. It just says that he stopped at some certain place place. It doesn't seem to be all that extraordinary. It's just an ordinary place where he decides to stop because the lights were turned off, right? Uh, Which means the sun had gone down. So he couldn't see, so he decided to stop right there. And you wonder, at least I wonder, what exactly it is that he is thinking. What are the thoughts that are going on in his head? You know what it's like when you lay your head down on your pillow at night and perhaps for the first time all day you're not running anymore, hither and thither. You're just there thinking. What would Jacob have been pondering in this time? Right? Perhaps, perhaps he was wondering why, uh, why it is that, uh, uh, that his father never seemed to want, really like him all that much. Why it was that he would only bless him, by and large, it seemed, at least at first, if he acted as if he was his older brother. Maybe he was remembering, oh, wasn't it great whenever Esau wanted to play with me rather than to kill me? Uh, Maybe he's thinking about his mother whom he loved so much and who loved him and it was always there for him. But now it seems perhaps she made a mistake. I mean, maybe this whole blessing thing that she came up with, maybe that wasn't good after all because now here he is with nobody around him in a place he doesn't even sure what it is and it seems like he's all alone. In fact, the one thing it seems that he definitely doesn't or isn't thinking about is God. Up to this point, God remains very much a mystery, by and large in the story, other than in the very beginning, but certainly in Jacob's life. At least it seems like that. Because all of a sudden, just as he falls asleep, Jacob begins to dream. And we're told that, that there, 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 all of a sudden there's this ladder, right? Now, we usually say the word ladder. In fact, we kind of, you know, we talk about Jacob's ladder. But in reality, it probably wasn't so much a ladder. Most think that it was probably more like, a, uh, like it came from a, a, like a, a Mesopotamian ziggurat, right? Which is always my favorite of ziggurats, if you were curious. It's a Mesopotamian one. And this is probably perhaps more of what it looked like. And in fact, that is probably like a stairwell. And you see that stairwell right there. So it's probably more better said it's it's Jacob's stairwell where the angels could easily then ascend and descend back and forth. And then we're told that God was beside him. And actually, it depends upon how you want to translate the Hebrew. Uh, NRSV translates it as God is beside. Uh, If you have the NIV, I think it is, and certainly other translations will say that God was above it as if he was on top. And, And it's been pointed out that that's actually perhaps that ambiguity is very helpful. Because in reality, God is oftentimes above us, right? The theologians would say he transcends over us. He is certainly other than us, right? And we need that. But God is also beside us. God is also there. He is imminent, again, as the theologians would say. He is right there next to us, intimate. So God is both above and beside. And then God begins to speak to 
Jacob. And he tells Jacob that at long last, yes, Jacob, that, that, that my blessing that I gave to your grandfather Abraham and then to your father Isaac is coming upon you. And you are going to be a blessing. And through you, you're going to bless other places and other people. And not only that, he goes on to say, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to keep you. And and I'm going to bring you back to this place. And then he says, and this is throughout Scripture we see this. This is so important. He says, I am going to be with you. Right? This is kind of like Christmas in the desert, if you will. Right? Because we just went through Advent in that sense of Emmanuel, God with us. Right? So So that Isaac, or excuse me, that Jacob knows throughout this that God is going to be with him. It's this very kind of significant moment. And, and then all of a sudden, Jacob wakes up, right? And he realizes, he realizes that God had been there all along. And he, he hadn't seen it, but he, he knew that God was there. And so for the first time, we hear Jacob give voice to God. He says, well, this is great. He says, well, you know what? If, if, if all these things are, you know, true, he says, then I'm going to follow you and you're going to become my God, and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to give away a tenth of whatever I, whatever it is that I that I have, and I'm going to name this place. Um, I'm going to name this place Bethel, and he, he takes the pillow um, that he had been sleeping on, comfy, and he puts that up right, and he and he puts some oil on top of it, and as a way of kind of celebrating the event that had happened. There, it's this kind of remarkable moment for Jacob. And he he says, this is the gate of heaven. And one of the things that people oftentimes kind of scratch their head around when it comes to the whole story of Jacob, but maybe even especially this particular passage and part of the story is because, you know, Jacob, as we've said before, he is not a great guy. Right? I mean, Jacob always, it seems, he's kind of, he's, he's a liar at times. He's always kind of caught up in this uh, chicanery, if you will. There's always this sense of he's trying to swindle somebody. He's on the lamb from his brother. He's not a great guy. And yet, God comes down and says, I am going to be with you and I am going to bless you. And it's significant that that Jacob didn't go to bed. He didn't have his knees there, and he wasn't on his knees praying and repenting, and then God came to him. Rather, God met him right where he was, right there, and God said, I am going to bless you in the very midst of that. And what is even more surprising, perhaps, is that even after all of that, and after God coming down to Jacob and saying, I'm going to be with you, in spite of the fact, he didn't say this, I would have, in spite of the fact that you're kind of a swindler and you're not all that great and you seem like you're kind of a jerk at times, I'm still going to be with you. And then Jacob, did you hear his reply? Right? Very significant two letters. If, well, you know, thanks for all this, and I want you to know, I'm a pretty swell guy. And if you do all of these things, and if you are with me, and if you keep me, and if you give me food to eat, and if you bring me back to this place, then, wait for it, you will be my God. Right? 
I mean, it's this remarkably kind of conditional response, right, which I love because it shows in so many ways how hard it is to kind of, to kind of move us from one step to the next, from one rung to the next, however, whatever verbiage you want to use. It's just remarkable. And what I love about that as well is, remember the very first week, if you were here, we talked about how Jacob will one day be renamed and he will then be called Israel, right? And so for the initial audience, and I would suggest, which now includes us, right? This was really a story about them and how clearly this is a story about us, right? How frequently is this like us? Now, it's easy to see it in Jacob, but, but with how much frequency does God come down to us in spite of our faithlessness, in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our sin and brokenness, and he offers us his love and his grace, and with great frequency, we say thank you, and if you keep doing all of these things, and if things keep going well in my life, and if the New England Patriots lose tonight, then then you will be my God. Right? It's remarkable how conditional, and yet in spite of that, God continues to love and to meet us right where we are. Now, it's also been pointed out that it's somewhat comedic, or it's a helpful lens to see that God says, I am going to give you all of these things, and then Jacob says, well, thank you, and for giving me all of this, I will give you back one-tenth. As if we should be impressed by that, right? And I don't say that to make light of it, but I do say it as a way of saying that when we give and when we are generous, as we should be, that we do so not because we think, well, you should be impressed with this, but we do it because we say we can't believe that God has given us everything and we can just simply offer this back out of gratitude and out of thanks for what God has But it seems to me that beyond those things, one of the more significant parts of this, the more fascinating part of this story, is, is the dream. And is, is exactly how it is that, that, that Jacob all of a sudden begins to realize that God had been there all along. I mean, it's this significant thing where all of a sudden in this particular scene, what, what Jacob would call the gate of heaven is a place where heaven and earth come together, it seems. It's a, it's a place, if you will, where the physical and the spiritual all of a sudden are intermingled. Now, most of us uh, w would say that we believe that there is heaven, we believe there's earth, and yes, we believe that we are bodies, uh, are physical, but we are also spiritual, and we believe that there are spiritual things happening. We, most of us would give voice to that, uh, but I'm not sure how many of us actually really live like that, right? Especially Presbyterians. Uh, I, I've shared before that in the tradition in which I was raised in the Pentecostal world, I mean, we believe very much that there were spiritual and physical everywhere, right? We saw it in everything. It could be a bush that was kind of wrestling and we'd be like, ah, that's, that's a demon or that's, you know, that's an angel. And it could have just been a bird. But, but we would have said, no, that's something, right? And so I, I kind of wanted to revert away from that. Remember me telling you about this and get away from that to where we didn't see the spiritual and everything. I mean, sometimes it's just physical. Uh, but I, I did. So I went to the other extreme, right, which is Presbyterians. And you get to this other extreme, right, where, where we do believe in heaven and earth in a sense. But, but we think physical here, good, and spiritual just, you know, up there. Keep it up there. And the good news is that Jacob is clearly a Presbyterian. 
Because Jacob says, God was here and I was completely unaware of it. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. What I love about this kind of honest confession of Jacob is that Jacob realizes it's not like God just happened to show up there. No, 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 no. God was always there. But the reality is he simply did not have the eyes to see exactly where he was. And as I thought about that sense of the awareness and of of his being in a particular location where he kind of really felt the presence of God or where heaven and earth came together, I was, was, the thing that brought up to my mind, of course, is something that probably most of you have heard of, which is kind of this Celtic sense um, of, of thin places. Are you familiar with that? Thin places. And, and, and so for the Celts, these would be places where it seemed like heaven and earth were nearly touching one another, where you could sense the physical but also the spiritual. And, and with, great, with great frequency, those would be particular places, right? Particular places where they would go, where they would say, this seems to be a thin place. And, and, and there are, you know, you have the sense, ever since Jacob, of course, at least, you have the sense of a thin place, right? Bethel, there for him. Um, sometimes people say when we go out in nature, right, I, 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 I get this clearer sense of, uh, of the spiritual or of heaven or of God being here, right? For Presbyterians, classic uh, Presbyterians, uh, it's a place called Iona, which is a little island off of, uh, off of the mainland of Scotland, which is this kind of beautiful place where pilgrims have been going for hundreds of years. Uh, uh, for me, I, what I love, I love, I love massive kind of Gothic sanctuaries. I mean, to me, oftentimes, uh, where I went to seminary about an hour away was was a place that was on Manhattan called St. John the Divine. And, and you would w- go in there. If you've ever been on Manhattan, you should go. It's just beautiful. And, and when you're there, I mean, there's just a sense of transcendence. You can almost feel the sense of, of God being right there. God's here, and we didn't even know it. And, but thin places aren't just, it seems to me, these geographic places. In fact, there's a, uh, there was a book called Thin Places uh, by, uh, by someone named Tracy Bowser who talks about she was a, is an evangelical who kind of begins to kind of um, um, be uh, taken in by the Celtic tradition. And, and, and she says this. I want you to see what she says. She says, a truly thin place is any environment that invites transformation in us helping us as believers in Jesus to think and see and understand as he does. Any place that creates a space and an atmosphere that inspires us to be honest before God and to listen to the deep murmurings of his spirit within us is thin. And as I thought about that sense of that definition of, uh, of what Jacob might call the, the heaven's gate or the gate of heaven or what, what the Celts might call thin places or what you might call something else, as I, as I thought about that and as I thought about us here at ZPC, I realized, of course, that perhaps one of the greatest examples that we have here at ZPC of, a, of what for many is a thin place is the great banquet. Now, when I say the great banquet, I understand that lots of people have lots of thoughts about this. But if you are wondering about the great banquet, sometimes people say, well, why, is there, why do people talk about the great banquet so much? Why is this always, you know, quit pressuring me, you know? And, and I think a part of the reason is because for so many in our congregation, the great banquet is actually a thin place. I mean, if you see this, the second sentence, any place that creates a space and an atmosphere that inspires us to be honest before God and to listen to the deep murmuring of his spirit within us is 
thin. And I think that that's exactly what for so many is what Great Banquet is. I don't know if it's because of the fact that it's, you know, just a certain time, 72 hours that you set aside. I don't know if it's because it's here. I don't know if it's because, I mean, the the pillows aren't rocks, but the cots that you sleep in are basically rocks. And so I don't know if that's what it is, but whatever it may be, there is something about that time and that space that makes it a thin place. And, I, and so as I was thinking about that, I thought I would love to have one of our community lay directors. Uh, uh, we have Clay and Karen Barnes, and I would love for Clay. Will you come up here for a second, Clay? And if you don't know Clay, um, man, I don't know how to finish that sentence. Uh, Clay is a, uh, Clay is a, I'm just kidding. Clay is a great guy. Clay is an accomplished uh, businessman. I mean, this is not, he's not me. He's a really, I mean, he's a remarkable guy, and he's a very busy guy. Um, and he's incredibly wise. <laughs> you heard that? Sorry. You said that? Right. I'm sorry. I, I did say incredibly. <laughs> he's somewhat wise, and, 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 and he's a busy man, and yet he says, I'm going to find this is important enough for me to kind of do this. And there's a reason why the Great Banquet is important enough for him, and that's why I wanted to ask you up here, Clay. And so uh, my question for you, I have three questions, is, is will you tell me kind of where you were spiritually before you attended Great Banquet? Okay. Uh, Maybe the best description for me was I was an intellectual Christian, and uh, maybe a little background. I grew up uh, an atheist, actually, atheist, agnostic, secularist, something in that kind of realm, and uh, so there was no church background for me, um, and thankfully, I married this woman who uh, began to drag me to church, and it was against my will, and, uh, and uh, the reality is I really didn't believe what was going on um, in the church, and uh, went to a church in Chicago called Willow Creek Community Church, and there was this young pastor by the name of uh, Lee Strobel who got up and he gave a sermon series on Christian apologetics, and uh, that kind of rocked my world. And uh, so I went into a long, multi-year study about uh, apologetics. I did my first cover-to-cover read of the Bible. I studied a bunch of other religions, and over the course of that time, Um, it became clear to me that the evidence was so overwhelming in favor of Christ that I really had no other logical um, option but to go ahead and follow him. And uh, so I did. And uh, maybe uh, the best way to describe it is when I got to Great Banquet, I could clearly articulate what I believed, and I could clearly articulate why I believed, but that's not the same as having a relationship with a loving God. And so when my ZPC small group... uh, asked me to come to Great Banquet in March of, of 1999. Um, that's where I was, sort of an intellectual Christian here. And so tell me more about then, what was your actual experience at Great Banquet like? So I was uh, nervous, um, really nervous coming in. In fact, I tried to get out of it multiple times, and uh, especially on the day of. Um, I found every excuse, but somehow I ended up uh, coming, which was uh, actually ended up being a good thing. Um, for me, it was like hitting the pause button on a very chaotic life. Um, I was uh, able to leave the noise and the distraction that's kind of out here and, you know, where my cell phone is there, and I was able to leave that alone for 72 hours and focus on God. And I remember the first night, uh, we were actually in the chapel, and uh, I remember them uh, reciting Psalm 46, and I heard, Be still and know that I am God. And I... Um, allowed myself at that point to just be and to rest in God's presence during that time. And that kind of launched me into an incredible experience over the course of uh, that next 72 hours. And uh, the depth of community I felt 
uh, with other Christian men was amazing. I'd never felt that before. Um, I'd never seen grace and God's agape love. Um, I'd never experienced that in, in quite the tangible ways that I did a great banquet. And uh, frankly, I'd never felt nearer to God. Um, never had felt that experience uh, that I did that weekend. And uh, so the weekend was probably more transforming than I had anticipated and maybe even give credit to at this point in time in my life. Um, but I began to really finally understand God's grace and to understand his love and the way he pursued me. And that took this deep intellectual faith and it moved it, you know, the long 18 inches from here into my heart. And that's the kind of experience I had at Great Bank. And so tell me what happened after Great Banquet. I mean, did you just kind of go back to the intellectual? Did you cut the string there between sure. the head and the heart? Or what it looks was that like, like it, doesn't no, it? No, it doesn't look like it. That's why I wouldn't have asked you up here if it did. Uh, or I wouldn't have asked you Smart that guy. question. So, yeah. So Great Banquet um, is an incredible weekend. And, and, it, and for a lot of people, it's a mountaintop experience. Um, but that's not really the emphasis point of Great Banquet. The Great Banquet actually emphasizes the fourth day. And the fourth day is every day after that three-day weekend. And uh, the idea is not for Great Banquet to be an end point of your faith, but to be a launching point of your faith. And for me, it was clearly a launching point. Um, as I said, my relationship moved from um, sort of having this conceptual, um, abstract um, knowledge of God into a full-fledged relationship where it was the most important relationship um, I could have imagined. And my priorities changed as well. I wanted to be, you know, a big-wig business guy, and it was all about professional and success there. And uh, it shifted. That began to subordinate to things like listening for and doing God's will, uh, loving my wife as she wanted me to love her, um, taking my time and my resources and, uh, and my thinking and realigning those into priorities of God and family and relationships. And actually, I wrote them down um, 19 years ago. Um, this March, actually, and I still keep this in my wallet 19 years later just to remind me as I drift away from my priorities um, what kind of a relationship that I want to have with God. Um, beyond that, I started to really um, understand uh, or started to see how God was working, too, in the world, um, something I'd really not been aware of um, in my life. And uh, um, I saw him uh, most vividly, obviously, in me, and uh, that was a point where I was... Uh, um, uh, kind of um, working, uh, you know, in a compartmentalized world for me. I had sort of a personal, a work, a church-based compartmentalization going on, and I realized that it was a single life. And uh, for me, and it was all, it all belonged to God. And for me, that changed the way that I gave. It changed the way that I served. It changed the way that I had really simple interactions with people, maybe holding a door or being kind. And some big things, too. I realigned uh, our business uh, based on that as well. And uh, so it was a really important, purposeful um, shift for me. But I also began to notice um, God working in and through other people as well. And uh, for me, the most vivid example of that was this church. Actually, it was you. And uh, I still see that. Um, Karen and I have been members of this church for 22 years, and I can tell you that you have been the light of Christ for me um, throughout many of those years, and I can't thank you enough for that. Um, I'm a guy who started out as a, you know, atheist in a really, really dark place, and now I get to live in God's light um, every fourth day, this fourth day and every fourth day to come. So it's been a blessing. Great. Thanks, Thanks. Clay. Appreciate it. You could keep going, I know. So, I know, I was no, thinking, I've seen you this before. is really so, comfortable. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
<laughs> I was waiting for that, quite Thank honestly. You. Yeah, thanks, Clay. So I do think that the Great Banquet is a phenomenal way, is, is for many, again, as Clay was describing, this kind of thin place and this place where you can begin to say that surely God was here. Uh, there are other ways, of course, as well. I mean, we hope that when you come into worship, these are kind of, you know, on Sunday mornings, these are kind of many thin places, if you will, times when you are made more aware of the presence of God. We think that with the bread and the cup. Uh, you know, actually, one of the other ways that I have really um, um, begun to see this is uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I started um, seeing what's called a spiritual director. Um, and, and I know that that can sound, for me, it always sounded a little bit odd. Even as a pastor, a spiritual director, it just sounded, you know, a little bit, a, a little bit strange. And, and the people, a lot of people I'd seen who had kind of gone to spiritual directors have been a little bit more touchy-feely, more contemplative, which is not necessarily who I am. Um, so, but, but one of the things that I began to s- discover as I met with someone about once a month or so, and again, the only reason I did this was because in the program I'm in, I had to. Uh, uh, and so I, I, I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And, and, and the reason why, or the, what's happened in the midst of that, is that what this person has done has been just remarkably helpful in helping me to see where God is at work in my life. I mean, I know that may seem strange to say for a pastor, but sometimes we can be so busy uh, being about the work of God that we can forget about actual God, and we can forget and even in our own personal lives. And so one of the things that the spiritual director has done or, uh, has been really been to, to, to help me to be able to see where God is at work. And this is something that's significant that it's helped me to begin to see that God is not just there in those moments and not just there in those moments of great banquet or in those moments when I'm in that cathedral or, or perhaps for those who go to Iona, but that actually God is there in all of those places, in all places, places that seem thin and places that seem uh, thick, if you will. And this is really critical because one thing I have seen is I have seen people who become thin place junkies. And what they do is they live for one thin place hit to the next. And they go from one experience to the next experience to the next experience. And that's what their faith becomes. And they don't have time for silly things like church where people argue with one another and get caught up in silly things. But nor are they able to see God in things like when they're changing their baby's diaper or whatever it is that they're at a business meeting. And they kind of go from one thing to the next. And here is what is significant. I want you to hear it, whether it's a great banquet, whether it's a spiritual director, whether it's Sunday morning worship, whatever it is, uh, Mark Roberts has this great line where he says that a really, a proper thin place should actually help you to see where God, that God is in, that all of the world is a thin place for those who have eyes to see. That actually these experiences are wonderful, and I think it's important for us to be able to have those. But those moments should always be pushing us to where we can then begin to see where God is, not just in that one weekend, or not just in that one meeting, or not even just in that one place, but where God is at all times. That's the purpose of these kind of thin place experiences, right? This is what Clay was saying about the fourth day. One thing I've heard him say about Great Banquet is it should never be, I think you said, a a cul-de-sac, right? It's never there just to kind of sit there. Rather, it's always to propel us 
out. And I think you see this with Jacob, right? Jacob has this thin place experience, right? And what does he do? While it's somewhat conditional, most of us are. And he says, okay, I'm going to do, I think, I'm going to make you the Lord my God. And I'm going to change how I live. And I'm going to begin to give in a different way. His life begins to change because he experienced God in that way. One of the things that we need to do as Presbyterians, it seems to me, as a people, not all of us, but many of us, for whom our faith is oftentimes an intellectual practice, and that's where we feel safe and at home, is that we need to ask ourselves whether we are cultivating and putting ourselves in positions of those places that may seem a bit more thin. Whether it is great banquet, whether it is uh, having a spiritual director, whether it is kind of coming in here in a different spirit, whether it is just slowing things down, whether it is just being quiet, whether it is going out for a walk at times, whatever it may be to begin to do that so that we can begin to experience God with all of our bodies. And as we do those things, it seems to me, we will begin to see that those things are not ends in themselves, but rather they propel us forward into the mission of God so that we can then begin to see God wherever it is that we are. And a people who understand God in those emotional and those incredibly important thin places are a people who then can also begin to see God in the ordinary are a people, I am convinced, who are alive in Christ and whose lives will be changed and who will reflect that change to all that they meet. A people who continually are able to say, God, I did not see it, but God has always been in this place. May we echo Jacob in this way, and let us pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for opportunities that ZPC offers for places where it seems that heaven and earth come together, where the physical and spiritual are joined. You know, Lord, that that's what you've called us to, not a dichotomized life where we separate everything, but a life where we see where you are alive and your presence is made known to us and to the world around us. Help us to be a people, Lord, who sense your spirit that we might become more and more alive today in this place and tomorrow and to wherever else it is we may go. It's in your name we pray. Amen.